Welcome to the Vell Institute podcast. I'm your humble servant and host, Terry Weaver. Our mission for this podcast is to bring you stories about veterans, entrepreneurs, and leaders who are doing fascinating things with their lives. Our hope is to inspire you because we believe that inspired individuals will change lives, both theirs and others for the good. Bell Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we're asking for your support. There are two ways to do that. One, by getting involved with our mission, and two, by contributing financially. Please visit vellinstitute.org. That's V-E-L institute.org to help us make an impact. Welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited about my guest today, Josh Cherry. Josh is the CEO of Delta Life Fitness, a company that he and his team started while he was serving in the United States Marines. Josh served 14 years as a Marine. He went from enlisted to officer through a commissioning program. He graduated from Texas A&M University and then went on to the Marine Corps Flight School where he earned a perfect score and first in his class. He then served as a captain of the Marines for six years. Josh has dedicated most of his adult life to innovation in the fitness industry. He did that through starting Delta Life Fitness in a park and he grew the company and now they have franchises across the United States. Over 30 of them have launched successfully. I'm really excited about this interview because we get into the three tours in Iraq that Josh did, some really hairy situations that he went through, and a lot of good experience for business people. He talks about the tactics and routines and mindsets that he uses and what he's done to grow this company that's uh, really kind of taking over in the fitness industry. Hope you enjoy this really exciting, wide-ranging conversation with Delta Life Fitness CEO, Josh Cherry. So Josh Cherry. Mr. Weber. Thanks for being here, man. It's an honor. Thank you for having me. I've been excited about this podcast for a lot of reasons. One, I know you, um, and I've got to experience kind of Josh Cherry from afar, but also up close for the past couple, for the past year. Yeah, I mean, you've had some pretty deep and real conversations, and we've got to know each other on a, on a good level, so this is going to yeah. be fun. Yeah. Um, what's What I think some of the cool qualities that you have that I kind of want to dig into, like if I ask 10 people who know you, uh, what is Josh Cherry like? I think people would say, man, he's electric. Like I've talked to a, a friend um, that we both know. And he said, man, that guy's high energy. And this, this is a very well-respected guy. And uh, I wanted to ask you about that to get us started, man. Where does that come from? Is, is that something you developed? or Tell me about that. You know, it's funny because I, I get that a lot, right? Like everywhere I go, people are like, man, you have so much energy. Or, and I, I guess I just, in fact, we're having dinner last night from a friend that came in from Florida. And she said the same thing. Like, Josh, I couldn't imagine you just sitting on the couch watching Netflix. Like, and I don't see it that way because I love sitting on the couch watching Netflix. So I don't know. Uh, I guess I just, I really do enjoy life. I have a zest for life. I have a zest for people. And people fire me up. Like, I can be zero energy, feel like I'm complete, you know, depleted, have nothing left. The phone rings. I pick it up. I hear that other guy's voice. Ideas start flowing. I just, you know, I just, <laughs> you can hear it starting to come out right now. Like, I just, I think I just, I'm just excited about life and all the dynamics of it. And, uh, yeah, I don't know where that comes from, but I'm glad I have it. Because I, I do get that a lot. Can you, can you isolate, like, why you have it? Like, is, is it because you feel like there's a need to fire people up? 
or is it because not not many people have that? Do you, can you isolate where it comes from? You know, honestly, I have no idea other than, you know, people tell me that they think I'm a good salesman and I really don't think I'm a good salesman. I don't know, like, you know, I couldn't tell you the 99 closes to use, right? Like I'm not a good salesman. I'm just extremely passionate about things that I believe in. And I think it's just growing up the way my dad was. My dad was real analytical, wanted the evidence. He's engineering brain. So I was always trying to sell my dad on whatever idea I had or this new thing I had coming. And my mom was my my biggest cheerleader. She was always there supporting me and rubbing me up. Uh, so maybe a little bit comes from that. But when I look forward a generation to my grandfather, he was the same way. He knew everybody in the town. He had a lot of energy. He was out walking the mall every morning. And when I look one generation down, my youngest son, anybody who knows my youngest son, we bought a vacuum a couple weeks ago. And he, he, he doesn't make any money off selling vacuums, right? He's 10. <laughs> but he was, somebody came over to the house and he's over there showing them all the attachments and how cool it is. And like just wanted, he was just super pumped about this vacuum. So I don't know, maybe a little bit of it's genetic. Man. I'm not sure. 50 years ago, he could have been a Kirby salesman. <laughs> That's right. I'd have been a good one. I'd have been a good one. Nice. So you touched on passion. Like that, that's what fuels you. Um, tell, tell me a little bit more about that, what your passions are and, and maybe why they fuel you. And it's funny. I think a lot of it too comes from, uh, I have a really good ability to kind of see things. And when I understand it and I can articulate, like when it clicks for me, when something clicks for me, when I see the beauty in something and then it clicks and then I know how to articulate it, that's what makes me passionate, right? Like then I get excited and then I want to tell everybody else. I want to be able to show everybody else the side of the angle that I'm looking at. And so it makes me like with Delta Life, I'm super passionate about the brand and the model that we've built because it makes sense to me. It's to, it, to me, it's not the reason I'm so high energy about Delta Life and what I'm growing is it's not, it's not just a gem for women to me. It's been a decade of me and the other founders, like really putting thought into, you've seen me speak about it, how much thought we've put into how we serve our customers and everything. All of it makes sense to me on a really big level. And I can see how unique our product is compared to everything else that's out there right now. And I know how to articulate that and tell people how different we are and how we serve our client. And so I'm just so excited because there's a lot that goes into that. And there's a lot to explain on why it's so different. With Vell Institute, another one. Like, it's one that I understand. I, I, it wasn't just that I met Terry Weaver and I was like, man, I want to tell people more about Vell Institute. I told you. When I was in the Marine Corps, 14 years in the Marine Corps, I'm sure we'll get into that. Um, I loved that we actually studied leadership. We went through different types of things. I had mentors. We circled up and talked about core values and what good leaders were. When you exit the Marine Corps, you don't have that anymore. You go to your day job. Vell Institute brings veterans, entrepreneurs, and leaders together, and now I get to go through book courses where we sit, and I get to, I get to exercise that part that I haven't. So it's not like I want to talk about Vell because you know I know Terry, and I just want to do a favor for him. I can see the beauty of what Vell offers. I just get so excited about it that I want to tell everybody. Yeah. So I'm only it's, – it's not – you know. Uh, I'm an optimistically optimistic person. I like to see the good in things, but when I see the beauty in something, I can really wrap my head around it. it just fires me up, and I want to tell everybody else about it. Okay, since you went there, you, you raced ahead. Ratchet, <laughs> ratchet that energy back. Um, let's let's key the audience in or the listeners in on on your current venture. 
Delta Life Fitness. Oh, yeah. Give give me your first. Give me your forty five minute executive summary elevator pitch, and then kind of go into some detail from there. Forty five minute or second? Uh, second. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. Uh, Delta Life Fitness is a women's centric boutique fitness studio similar to Orange Theory or F45 or some of the other boot camp models. It's a group training environment for women. We really pamper the women. We have cooling towels for them after the class. We have 30-minute tone and torch workouts where they get a good combination of uh, cardio with strength training. And then we have childcare for the ladies. We're right at uh, 30 units nationwide that are either open or being developed right now and really set for some huge growth here in the next year or two. Excellent. That's the top level. So when you talked about why you were passionate about sharing the message of Delta Life Fitness, it almost sounded like it was a utilitarian appreciation for what you've built. Is that what you appreciate or is it serving these women? Tell, tell me more about where that passion comes from. Yeah. It, for now, for me you, personally. You've created something. So like you've created something new that was never on this earth before. Right? That's correct. So it'd be hard not to be passionate about that, but I want to kind of understand yeah. that a little bit more. And, and like I said, and it, so it's changed over the last decade of doing it. And for me, it's a little different. Like, right, there's there's four co-founders of the company. It's uh, myself, it's Kristen, it's Robbie and Cassie. And each one of us have different things that we're passionate about. And by the way, what we're passionate about has evolved or switched or changed. I would say Cassie and Kristen at the current moment are more passionate you know, I mean, you should see some of the transformations we get from the ladies talking about like either, we're, either we're going through a divorce or, mm. you know, just we just had a lady at one of our gyms. She's going through a divorce, tough time in her life. Her group, her tribe is the Delta Life course, but she, Delta Life ladies, she's going through a divorce, couldn't afford to pay for the membership anymore. An anonymous member steps up and paid three months of her membership. That, I mean... And, and it meant the world to her. She was in tears because she got to continue with her one thing that's for her. She has her Delta sisters, her tribe. So for Kristen and Cassie, they're more on the ground floor and they get to see the difference we're making in the women's lives. And that's what fuels them and fires them up. I, I, I do enjoy that. I like knowing that I have a product um, that helps people instead of hurts them. But what Robbie and I will talk to you all day and all night about is the beauty of the model. We, we love it because it's been, like you said, we've built something. We've poured our time, our energy, our blood, our sweat, our tears. We've studied this industry. I, I, would, I, would, I would be very surprised. If, I haven't met somebody yet who's, who's studied this boutique fitness industry as much as Robbie and I have. We've put a lot of time into this. We've tried every different type of workout that's out there. We've really studied the leaders pretty intently. Orange Theory Fitness, they just had their first billion dollar a year last year. Mm-hmm. Um, Curves was the industry leader for a long time. They, they made some mistakes. They, they fell. They let go of that seat. CrossFit's done some amazing things. Orange Theory's done some amazing things. And Curves did some amazing things. We've really studied those three and brought out the beauty of all three of those and put them into one. And we have, we have all the essentials for a really solid business model, which, by the way, doesn't look anything like Robbie or I. You've seen Robbie and me. If yeah. you go to the webpage, it doesn't look like me and Robbie. It looks like the clients we serve. And I've evolved in that way, too. I understand now that business is about building a business that looks like and serves a target client, a market, and not yourself. Right, And I've, I've had to evolve through that also. So at my current stage, my current stage in the business, what I'm so passionate about and proud of is the business model 
and what we've built and what we've been able to deliver to these ladies. Yeah, you know exactly who your customer is. We know who we serve and we serve them really well. Yeah, yeah and that's, that's something that I've, I've recognized when I've heard you talk about Delta Life Fitness. How many, based on your experience, how many companies or business owners do you come in contact with that have their ideal customer figured out to a T that's included in their 45-second commercial? You know, not many. How many, percentage-wise? Oh, less than 10%. How important is it? It's, it's everything. And the reason it's less than 10%, because I know, because I came from this world, the reason it's less than 10% is because we're scared. We're scared to say we serve one person because then we get because whenever you're just starting a business, right? You don't you can't say no to that one person who's going to do business with you. So you try to look at any way that you'll take that person, even though you know they're a bad fit. They don't they don't match your product offering at all. You'll figure it out if somebody's willing to pay you. You'll take the money and you'll try to service them. But then we end up servicing 8 to 80 men, women, children, and pets, mm. and we're really serving nobody very well. And it's a trap. It's an entrepreneurial trap so many businesses get stuck in. What I try to tell young businesses, have a limit on what you need to make a month. Maybe it's $5,000, okay? Okay. Cap that. Do Take in 5000 from anybody, but build and look at who you're serving the, way, the best out of that $5,000 a month. Start building that target market and start. And niche goes two ways. It's both the target market and the product. So start trying to narrow down your niche with product and the person you serve. And then slowly try to transition to where you can build that up to surpass the 5000 you were making from servicing everybody and eventually go to where you're only servicing that one product in that one niche. And when you become that go-to person for that one thing, you, you it's so much easier to get the click, to get people to come. And then you can service them so much easier. It, it, it's scalable beyond yourself. I thought when I was in a gym by myself training people that I was giving them so much more value than they could get in some big chain, right? Because I would work out with them there at the studio. I'd go on grocery store tours with them. I would give them meal plans. I would go to restaurants with them, their favorite restaurants, show them how to eat lunch. And I thought that was more value. You know how many people I could help at a time when I was doing that? About one a day. I mean, maybe a total in a month, I was doing 30 to 40 members I would help. Yeah. Now, Delta Life Fitness serves thousands of women. Hmm. We do $7.5 million in revenue a year and climbing, right? Back then, it was Josh serving 40 people, total revenue, you know, 20000 a year. And I wasn't serving anybody as well as I could. So knowing your target demographic, knowing what they need, what their pain points are, and figuring out how to deliver that on scale, it's huge. I could talk about it forever. I could give you a lot of examples on how insurance can make the transition, a lot of different uh, sectors out there can make the transition and they would be they would be able to serve a lot more people in a better way but I understand why people don't it's scary you're a great marketer um, let's hold let's hold that there let's hold that conversation for, for a minute and let me go let me ask you a very serious question you ready <laughs> ready <laughs> favorite cartoon or show as a kid I'm talking like 10 12 years old <laughs> okay uh, it's not a cartoon but do you remember the uh, the dinosaur show, Dinosaurs? It's like the little family of dinosaurs, like not the mama, and the little baby would hit the dad on the head. That's the Flintstones, isn't it? No, not the Flintstones. It was dinosaurs. 
I really enjoyed that show. <laughs> no idea why. They like they worked the little fact they're dinosaurs. It's like a real show, like a sitcom, like Roseanne style sitcom, but of dinosaurs. Okay. You don't remember but it wasn't that? animated? It was not animated. How did they come up with the dinosaurs? That's a good question. I have no idea. They're just little dinosaurs. But I thought that show was hilarious. I watched it all the time as a kid. <laughs> I'm glad I asked. Somebody that, out there is gonna know what I'm okay. talking about. <laughs> okay. How about your favorite gaming system? Were you did you play a video game? Oh yeah, so I never went I never went the, the Sega route, I never Ooh. went the PlayStation route. I was okay. always a Nintendo, Nintendo sixty four, Xbox guy. So you had the, the first Nintendo? I had it I started with an Atari when I was like four, and then I went with the very first Nintendo when I was five. Yes. Yeah. Awesome, man. <laughs> Great. Okay. Um, let me let me ask you your favorite memory. As a kid, I know this is probably tough, but but go. No, I got it. Okay. Yeah, got it instantly. So um, let's get a little older. I had a little sister. I kind of knew the deal with Christmas already, right? Yeah. Um, it, my, my sister didn't, but I kind of knew the deal with Christmas. And my mom, who was uh, a lot like me, she was on the emotional side. She comes to me and my sister. She tells us and she reasons with me. She knew I had a good heart. She was just like, "Hey, it's been a really rough year. We don't have much. We can't mm-hmm. get you and your sister much this year." And I was, you know, I was like, "Okay, I understand." Uh, I'll help out with Shiley, my younger sister, and kind of set the expectation for her, right? Uh, we come down Christmas morning, and it was just everything we'd asked for and more, right? And I, like, fell to my knees, and I was like, oh, my goodness, Santa is real. And my mom went one way crying. My dad went another way crying. Like, they were both so overcome with joy in that moment. Uh, of the memory I have of that house and my sister and my mom and my dad, my family that I grew up with, right? Uh, that, that memory I have of my family at that moment is definitely my, my favorite memory of all time. Wow, man. When yeah. you said you were, what, 14 and a half at that time? No, I was probably uh, 12, maybe, somewhere around there. 12, right yeah. on. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Very good. All right. And now, you grew up in, is it Vider? Vider, Texas. Yeah, people Vider. pronounce it Vit, Vidor, Vitor. Yeah, but Vider, it's a little bit small town right outside of Beaumont, southeast Texas. What the heck do people do, or <laughs> what did they do when you were growing up there? You know, I mean, it's a normal, it's a normal small town in southeast town? Texas. Yeah, rural town. Uh, the, the football is life, right? Okay. So the whole town shuts down on Fridays. Everybody goes out and supports the football team. We have a big parade every year for the homecoming. The town literally shuts down to half day of school and homecoming day. We have a homecoming parade that goes through the whole town. Uh, now, most of the women uh, that are invited, they go to Dust Life Fitness. We have one of the original studios there in Vider, Texas, uh, right off Main Street. There's not much. There's not much on Main Street, <laughs> so we're one of the spots there. But yeah, there's not much to do. Uh, sports. Let's see, if you do anything, go see a movie or anything. You got to drive over to Beaumont and okay, go over there. So Beaumont, right there on the on the uh, the border of Louisiana and, and uh, East Texas. That's right. And from Vider to go to Beaumont, you got to cross the Natchez, which we grew up uh, fishing and water sports. I grew up skiing and wakeboarding and everything on the Natchez River, doing a lot of water sports. Uh, so yeah, that's what that's what I did. And you mentioned being in the Marine Corps. I did. Another thing about being from a small town Texas and graduating in 2003, right after 9-11, um, Texans are very patriotic. They like to serve their country, especially from those small towns. A lot of my cousins had went. I, uh, I graduated in 2003 in a small town in Texas, and uh, that was the heat of Afghanistan and Iraq, and I didn't want to miss my generation's war, so... Went down in the recruiter's office and signed up and was going to be a tanker, 
was going to be a, a tank guy because I just said, sign me up for whatever. Mm. Uh, came and told my parents. They were supportive. Uh, a little upset. My mom cried, of course. Uh, but they were supportive. <clears throat> I did do pretty well on my ASVAB test. Remember that thing? So I'm scheduled to go be a tanker like six months down the road. My recruiter calls me up out of nowhere and he says, hey, uh, one of the guys that I was supposed to ship off this weekend can't make it. Will you take a spot? <laughs> this is like six months before I'm prepared to go. I don't know anything. I was not the guy who studied my general orders or, you know, I wasn't prepared at all. I was in horrible physical condition. But, you know, that's kind of my superpower, just being down and ready and willing when people call me. <laughs> like, that's the only thing I got going for me. So I said, you know what? Sure, I'll go. And he's like, cool, it's a helicopter door gunner job. You're going to love it. It's going to be great. It was fate. Um, so I, you know, I didn't realize how coveted that spot was. You know, okay. the helicopter door gunner spot it's really one of the best jobs you can have as, a, as an enlisted Marine. Uh, and I'm so thankful that call came in and it led to everything else that happened in my life. Uh, so made the call and jumped on the bus that weekend and headed over to San Diego for United States Marine Corps uh, Recruit Depot. Do you remember the exact day or, or circumstance <clears throat> around deciding to, to join the military? You know, it was just, it was a, it was a summer. I had turned 18. I was doing a sales job for a landscape company and I had a little bass boat and we had spent the day out on the water wakeboarding and stuff like that. And, uh, me and a group of my buddies partied a little too hard that night. Right. And I remember waking up the next morning and I just said, I've got to get out of this. Uh, it was nothing against that town or anything. It was just what I was caught up in at the town at that time. And I said, you know, I've, I've got to go do something dramatic and just get out of the environment I'm in right now and go try to do something to, to better myself and make my parents proud instead of, you know, continuing to party every weekend and just being stuck in the rut I was in. So tell me, tell me about this job, the door gunner and uh, why it's the best job in the Marines. It really is. And you have to sign a five year contract to do it, which I didn't know at the time, but I just said sure and signed because what's one more. Uh, But I, I get through, basic and I go to the school and it turn out it turns out everybody else that's in my class to become a helicopter door gunner they had been like trying to get this spot for like a year or two because and, and they were signed up a year in advance like these spots they only let out so many a year it's, it's the best the reason I think it's the best is because when you're in the Marine Corps Marines sign up because they want to fight right like mm-hmm. especially 18 year old young hard charging uh, Marines and they want to fight. They want to feel like they contribute. They want to do some high-speed, low-drag stuff, right? They want to actually know machine guns, learn guns. And you get to do all that, being a being a Huey crew chief like I was, a Huey door gunner. Um, you get to learn machine guns. You get to really be in the fight. You do close air support. You do CASVAC, which is, you know, when people get injured, you get to fly in. And you're, you're in the fight. Yeah. You're in yeah. the fight. But you don't have to walk like all the other Marines, right? So that's the best part of it, you know? Uh, you go out and you do convoy escorts and you're flying up and down the line and you see those poor Marines down there humping it, you know, the hard-charging infantry guys. They got the same machine gun you do, but they're having to carry theirs and ours is mounted to the side of the helicopter. So you get, you get to be in the fight. You get to contribute. You get to do some pretty exciting, intense things. You get to fly in a helicopter. I had never flown in a helicopter until... Until the Marine Corps, you know, so you get to fly around in a helicopter, see the world from a different perspective. Um, but you don't have to walk. That's the mm-hmm. you know, if, if, if any Marines out there listening, you know how you know how important that is. <laughs> yeah, keep keep it simple, man. That's it. Um, do you remember? Do you do you remember boot camp well? I'm sure you do. I do very well. How tough was it? What was one of the biggest obstacles, either physical, mental, 
You know, for me, uh, physically it wasn't that bad. Because, I, I, like I said, I grew up in southeast Texas, and I grew up with a dad who, uh, you know, on the weekend, you go help your grandpa clear land, and you go help your uncles build houses. And so I was not... Um, I already knew what hard work felt like. Yeah. I already knew what a long day's hard work felt like. And I thank my dad and my family for that. What I wasn't prepared for is, you know, I was kind of a, I was kind of a mama's boy, loved being home. I didn't even really like going to spend the night at friends' house. Like, I liked them coming to my house. It was, I was going to be the guy who was going to live in Viner, Texas the rest of my life. I was perfectly happy with that. I was never, I want to leave this town. I was, I like being in the country. I wanted a white picket fence, a family, and stay there my whole life. To me... And I loved my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, and my grandparents. Like, I'm a huge family guy. Like, I loved having all that. Yeah. I had a lot. Of, I had a blessed childhood, mm-hmm. and I in no way wanted to escape that. <laughs> you know, so the hardest thing for me, man, was those first two weeks of no contact with anybody back home. No music. That's tough, right? Yeah. The yeah. limited sleep, the hard work, and just the culture shock of... And it wasn't even just the 13 weeks of Marine Corps boot camp. I think it kind of hit me those first couple of weeks. Like, I'm going to be away from everybody for at least five years. You know, like, and I guess it never really dawned on me until I got there. So for me, man, the hardest part was the culture shock of just realizing, like, life's not ever going to be the same again. Yep. Yeah. Makes sense, man. And and just to... Uh... Just to key people in on the culture, because you said it was a culture shock. What is the culture of the Marine Corps? I know a little bit about it. Yeah, I know you do. I love the Marines. Yeah, Marines are Marines are very proud. Yeah, uh, that they get the most done. They fight the hardest and the best with the, with the least amount of resources. Right, and they'll tell you that all day long. Just ask them. You know, they're the first ones in the fight. They they have cold chow and poor equipment, but they get the job done, you know, and that's what you, you learn from day one at boot camp. I, I grew up, like I said, I had a pretty good childhood. If, you know, if I couldn't get the water pump changed on the truck, you know, I could use an excuse. Oh, it was a little hard. And you're like, oh, okay, we'll try to figure it out. I learned real fast in the Marine Corps that there was no excuse for anything. You know, mm-hmm. the first time I thought I had a good excuse, you know, you tell the drone for the next day why you didn't get something done. And, and he's like, you slept last night? And you didn't get the task done, you know, and that's when I realized that mission, and that's what, how Marines are. The mission comes before you eating, comes before you sleeping. You can't be internal. You can't worry about yourself. And it taught me the basics for leadership because leadership's like that. Mm. You can't, you, you, you know, like General Hummer said on the podcast with you guys before, you know, gener- uh, leadership is, is extra. It takes extra effort. And that's what it is. Like you can't. I'll do leadership after I get a full belly. I'll do leadership after I get a full night's rest. You know, so that's some of the biggest things the Marine Corps taught me was uh, the mission comes first. You get that done. And if you slept last night, you shouldn't have an excuse, right? And then just it takes extra. takes extra effort. Yeah. Yeah, good stuff, man. I remember uh, running around with the Marines and uh, just the the cadence. Talked a little bit about the culture, you know. The cadence that they sang for running was all about smashing through walls, killing people, destroying things. And the culture is just the culture of the Marine Corps seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, is we can do anything. Just 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 let us at it. And really you have to put restraints on Marines, because they just want to go, like you said. And you know, and one of the best ways I can explain it is 
you know, I found myself in a little bitty base on the Syrian border in the heat of the Iraq war. Uh, and we're sitting in this tent and mortar rounds are coming in all over the place, right? Mm. And I just think back to my life just two years before this and how the people in my life at that time would have, how they would have handled that. These mortar rounds are falling all around us and every, like there's tears in everybody's eyes because they're laughing so hard. <laughs> and that sums up the Marines. They were all, they were making a joke about how if one of the mortar rounds hit our Xbox, we were gonna, we weren't gonna listen to the generals. We were just gonna go kill them because because that's our only thing we had was this one Xbox, and we were all making jokes about one of these mortar rounds better not hit our Xbox. And you know, I mean, that's the Marines. They make a joke out of everything, and then I, you kind of have to, right? Like, but it was. I mean, I was a small town Christian boy from the Bible Belt, Southeast Texas, where you say, yes, ma'am, and yes, sir, and you watch your mouth, you know, and then all of a sudden you're thrown into just a roughneck group of people who have no regard for life, no fear, just uh, humor and ready ready to rumble at any moment. That's one thing about Marines. They are ready to fight anytime. You know, you, you let them into a fight, they're ready to go. And they're war fighters, and they're good at it. Yeah. Yeah, man. Very cool, man. Yeah. Um I want to talk about that that experience. You did you did three tours. I did in Iraq, and it was all as a door gunner. They were all, all three as a, a door gunner. Yes. Yeah. These were what seven month deployments, six month deployments. Yeah, they were about seven. So it was two thousand five, two thousand six, two thousand seven. Um, so pretty much those whole three years, you can't ask me anything about pop culture, music, football. I don't know anything about those three years, right? Because mm-hmm. I was either deployed for the seven months, I was either in Arizona training to be deployed. Or on like my two weeks leave back in Texas, just getting ready for another round. You know, that was. Yeah. Well, talk about pivotal moments in the Marine Corps, um, but specifically in wartime. Were there pivotal moments that you can remember where something changed inside of you that made you think differently or. Tell me me about that. Because I know, and just for, for me, when I went to. When I went to when I deployed to Iraq, there was a time where I just uh, when I checked in in Kuwait before I entered into Iraq, my thought was, "Man, it's going down, and I'm ready to die, so might as well just go all out." When I checked in the day that I checked in in Kuwait, and that was a pivotal pivotal moment for me because I I just I left it all out there, and went 100. That's kind of my nature, but if and it, were there pivotal moments like that for you? Yes. And it did not happen for me like that. Uh, I had to learn the lesson a little differently. But it's a lesson that then stuck with me and I just got reminded of it in entrepreneurship. Um, it was 2000 and I got thrown right into the fire. In 2006 and 2007, we're, we're kind of, we, we did a couple of uh, gun missions and close air support in 2006. But 2007 was pretty much just a policing Force, you know, it really in 2007, it was just the boredom and missing my family. Mm-hmm. 2006, kind of same. 2005, we got thrown on the fire. I mean, mm-hmm. it was in the the heat of the war. We were we got as soon as we get to Iraq, we go to Al Assad, which is this big air base, and I felt very comfortable. <clears throat> and I didn't have that. Like I was just doing some convoy escort stuff. Like never felt. I mean, mortars would come in every now and then, but there was I never had to have a moment where I had to. Man, I was never scared. Right, like I might die. And then all of a sudden, just 30 days being in the country, they send me and a handful of other people, like eight of us, and two uh, Hueys and two Cobras 
they sent us out to this little base called Al Qaim on the Syrian and Jordan border, right on the Euphrates River. Okay. And at the time, they were there was about 800 insurgents a day crossing the border right there mm-hmm. at the Euphrates River, and our job was to go and stop them. And also, Zarqawi was suspected to be in the town. There's books written about this battle now. It's the Battle of Al Qaim. Uh, but Zarqawi was supposed to be in this town. And talk about Zarqawi <coughs> for people that, that yeah. don't understand. Zarqawi, at, the time, at, at this time, he's leading the entire um, insurgent force at, in Iraq at this time. And we've chased him all over the country. He, at one point, he was third in command. But after Saddam, his son, son, uh, sons were killed. Zarqawi was the guy. He was an evil person. There's a lot of movies out there that feature Zarqawi. Um, the one with uh, Chris Kyle hmm. where he's trying to get the guy with the drill where he's taking the drill and mm-hmm. putting the drill in the kids' heads and yeah. stuff. I mean, yeah. Zarkow was a, was a really, I mean, he's a bad guy's bad guy. Brutal. You know, he was a very, very bad guy. I mean, you heard um, a gentleman talk about Zarkow not so long ago. We got General to go. McChrystal. General McChrystal. He wrote a book about it. He sure did. Yeah. Uh, Zarkow was a bad guy. So he's suspected to be in this town. I find myself, I'm 20 years old. Um, I'm 20 years old. I'm at this little bitty base in Alcon. We're getting hit with mortars every day. Uh, uh, Vehicle-borne IEDs are hitting the gates pretty much every day. It's a bad time. Me and a couple of my lifelong buddies are still really good friends with me. We're, we're staying at this base, and it was like out of the movies. It's 2 o'clock in the morning, and we've got everybody. We're in this tent, and we're getting a brief on how we're, we're going through the town the next day. We're going to get Zarqawi. We've got the Marine Infantry Group there. There's Al Qaim is kind of trapped by a big cliff on one side and a river on the other side. The Marine Corps battalion was going to stage just south of the river. There was only one exit to the north was a bridge, and so we just had we were just going to send three tanks to guard that north bridge, and the whole battalion was going to come from the south up through, and we were going to get Zarqawi right. So it was called Operation Matador. Mm. Like I said, lots of books written about it now. It's uh, it's a pretty famous battle. I've got all the books in my house because it mentions. A lot of the stuff in there. The next morning, the the day kicks off, and it is just like nothing I'd ever seen since I'd been there. And I'd only been in country for about thirty days, but I mean, it's every time we go out with a Winchester, which in the Marine Corps means you run out of ammo completely. You empty the rocket pods, the fifty cal, the Gal seventeen, which is a minigun. You go completely out of ammo. You have to come back and you have to reload. Talk, stop right there. <clears throat> Talk about the firepower of these guns. What what? Yeah. Talk about each of those guns and what yeah. they can do. So the 50 cal, obviously, it's your, it's your big guy. It can punch through anything. It's doing about 850 rounds a minute. It can take out a tank. It's And plus we have skittle rounds, what we call them. So there's high explosive rounds mixed in. There's incendiary rounds. There's tracer mix. And there's armor piercing. And it repeats that five cycle over and over again. There's a Gal 17, which is a six-barrel minigun. Shoots 3,000 rounds a minute. And then you have the 2.75-inch Zuni rockets, which are rockets that you point and shoot. And then that's just on the Huey. The Cobra is carrying uh, your Hellfire missiles, your tow missiles, and your 20-cal, uh, I mean, a 20-millimeter cannon on the front of it. So, And we always roll with a Cobra and a Huey, right? So we had a lot of firepower. <laughs> We would go out and they would, and by the way, for about five days before this operation, we dumped leaflets over the whole town, letting them know like, hey, if you're not Zarqawi or with him, get out of town because we're coming to get him. So there was entire villages of people living in tents. So we pretty much knew everybody left in the town was a bad guy, right? Mm-hmm. And at, at the end of this thing, I mean, it was, it ended up being like 180 insurgents killed. Uh, we lost like 40 or 50 men. Uh, it was, it was bad. It was a... It was a bloodbath, and what happened, 
they knew that that one bridge was the only way out of town. So when the tanks came on station, the three tanks that had to block the north end of the town so the battalion could come up through, they had anti-tank double-stacked mines waiting at the bottom of that bridge. Mm-hmm. So when the tanks were, I'm overhead, we had just got done shooting up a house, and we come over, and the tank pulls up just south of the bridge. The, the battalion to the south is just starting to march up through the city, and the tank hits this mine. And from the sky, you know, I'm seeing the tanks and I'm seeing a couple of Humvees and all the Marines are laying down in the Humvee. It looks like nothing's really going on, but I see the Marines like kind of duck down and I see the guy open the door to the tank and he comes up and he starts waving his hand and that's when the smoke starts coming up out of the tank, you know. Uh, and our, our pilot, Major Hanville, uh, this, by the way, this whole story was on Jocko Wilkins' podcast. Wilkins, and he, yeah. yeah, and he talks oh. about uh, the guy, the guy, the, the tank commander talks about us and our Huey ship coming in because Major Hamble looks at all of us and he says, hey guys, obviously we were not allowed to go down there because they, if they could have taken out a helicopter, which they would have wanted to do, it would have looked really bad on us. That we're supposed to call in an army medevac plane to come in, but we knew these guys didn't have time. So Major Hamble looks around the plane. He says, hey guys, you know we're not supposed to go in, but is everybody okay with us going in, right? And when you say the plane, you mean <coughs> the, you the mean helicopter. The helicopter, yeah. The Huey. the Huey. So the Cobra stays over top, uh, providing support, and we go down, and we land in between the two tanks. The one that had taken the, the mine round, we land in between them. My only thought at this point is, I've got to run from the helicopter to the tank to try to get the people out of there. I'm going to step on another mine. That's all I can think about, right? And all you hear in the Marine Corps is, when the time comes, are you going to freeze up? And they, they joke you about that. Like, you're not mm-hmm. going to be that guy, are you? Mm-hmm. You know, so all I'm thinking is, I don't want to look dumb in front of my Marine friends. Like, I can't be at the child hall tonight and them be calling me out, <laughs> you know? So i got to do whatever it takes. Complacency had gotten a hold of me. I have an M4 rifle that I carry with me and an M9 pistol. I strapped the M9 pistol around my seat, and I strapped my M4 to the bulkhead of the helicopter. So I have no weapons on me. I get out of the helicopter with the other crew chief. We run over to the other to the tank that's you know smoking at this point. We pull out a couple of guys. This one staff sergeant comes out, <clears throat> uh, legs blown pretty bad. He's punching me the whole time. Uh, we drag this guy over to the helicopter. We get him in. Later comes out. Uh, we get a call from the White House a couple years later. Uh, thanking us for this. And we, we all got uh, a couple of our air medals that we got with Valor came out of this event and everything. Turns out he, he was so rattled. When, he, when we were pulling out of the tank, he thought we were the insurgents. And he had said he was trying to reach his pistol and couldn't get it. If he could have reached his pistol, he would have shot us because he thought we were the insurgents. <laughs> Luckily, he couldn't get his pistol, so he's just punching us. And I'm like, Staff Sergeant, i got to get you in the helicopter. Um, there's a whole story on him. Uh, great Purple Heart veteran. Uh, he ended up losing one leg completely. We get him in the plane. We rescue a couple of other ones. We try to get the last guy. Uh, he, he didn't he didn't make it. Like The more we would try to pull him out, uh, just the tank had collapsed around him. It wasn't good. Uh, but as we're standing on top of the helicopter, or on top of the tank, trying to get the last guy out, uh, we start hearing rounds coming in. And I look over at the helicopter because I think they're hitting the helicopter. I was like, oh, man, it sucks to be those guys. <laughs> they're hitting the front of the tank we're standing on. Uh, if you hear the guy t- tell the story on... Uh, Jenko, Jenko, is that how you say it? Willing. If you hear him say the story, he says the only reason he thinks they missed this is because, you know, like, they must have been so excited seeing the three of us standing on top of this tank that they just pulled the shots. But they all start hitting on front of the tank, 
And I jumped down and I'm just buried on one side of the tank, covering myself up. And I just started laughing. Like a couple days before when the mortar rounds were coming in, I started laughing and I'm looking at the helicopter and I'm thinking, we're about to get overrun and they're gonna take me and my freaking gun is left in the helicopter. So mad at myself because my gun's in the helicopter. Uh, the dude Krasminski, our co-pilot, Lieutenant Krasminski, jumps out of the helicopter, out of the front of the helicopter. You say the dude? The dude, that's his nickname. That's uh, Lieutenant okay. Krasminski, the dude. When he checked into the unit, uh, the CO walked by and he said, what's up, dude, to okay. the CO. Uh, so his nickname became the dude. Just, just so everybody knows. Call sign. Right, right. But also, everyone in the military has a stinking nickname. <laughs> everyone. <laughs> that's true. So the dude runs over to one of these uh, one of these Humvees. He wakes up the Marines. He's like, hey, you got a 50-count top of this Humvee for a reason. Start laying down some fire so my guys can run back from the tank. Uh, also, at this time, two of my best buddies, Rob Wisely and David Fields, they were asleep. They were on the next shift back in the thing. They went and woke them up and said, hey, Cherry went down in the field. These guys were dressed, and the, and the blades turning on the plane, on the helicopter, in like three minutes. Uh, David Fields comes flying into the zone, 50 cal blazing. Uh, anyway, with the with the helicopter coming in, 50 cal blazing, and the Humvee starting to return fire, we make a run for it. We get back to the helicopter. We lift off. We shoot our way out of there, and we bring these Marines that we were able to save back to uh, back to the hospital. And now I'll finally answer your question. Okay. At this point, now I realize on every mission I started to go on after that. Like that day, it didn't really hit me, right? But we came back and we had bullet holes all in our helicopter. It was a tough day, right? It was the longest day of my life. It was Mother's Day of mm-hmm. 2005. We call it the Mother's Day Massacre. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a bad day. Uh, and that the next couple of days, I kind of turned into a really bad war gunner, man. Like I couldn't do anything. Like Every time we would take off on the mission, I was just terrified of like having flashbacks of the day before and what was going to, and they needed me to be diligent and I needed to be manning my gun and doing my job. And I I couldn't really operate because I was so consumed with fear. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until the moment I finally had to just have that talk with myself. Like you did in Kuwait, which good job for you for having it early. I finally realized, look, I'm either going to get out of here (laughs) and have some awesome stories to tell in a Vell podcast one day. Or I'm going to die here. And I, and I had to finally just be okay with it. And I had to accept it. I had to accept like, okay, I might die here. But if I die here, until that moment, I need to do the best I can and do my job the best I can. And I've similarly learned that lesson with entrepreneurship. I don't know if you want to dive into that yet or let's come save back to that. that. <laughs> let's come back to that, man. So, so your first deployment in Iraq, 30 days in, you go through this monumental battle. It was a five-day battle. It was, I mean, the whole thing. And, and by the way, on the last day, uh, I just want to go on the record of saying I watched our Cowie drive off in the sunset. There was so much chaos. The group that was supposed to come up from the south, our bridge never could get the, – the current of the river, the Euphrates, kept knocking out our, our bridge. And so all of our Marines were just sitting ducks. They started mortaring our guys. We finally break into the city. Uh, I got to do some shooting at night. We go back in that night to try to get the guys out of the tank. I'm on MVGs. I see a guy step around a corner with um, an RPG. He didn't know, but when you shoot an RPG at night, the tube that you're holding glows up Mm. like a giant target. So I dumped an entire can of 50 cal on that guy. Uh, I was one of the only door gunners in HMLA 269 to ever 
uh, shoot the 50 cal from the helicopter in a night battle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that was in the, the COs and the uh, Cobra behind me. He shot also with the, with the 20 mic mic. Uh, so we spend the next couple of days trying to get those guys out. The Marines finally start coming up through the city. We take some really big casualties with some more IEDs. Marines start going house to house. This was the battle you've probably heard about. They started laying in the under the floors. Mm-hmm. Our Marines would fill the house, and they would just shoot up all the Marines from underneath the floor. We lost a lot of Marines. They lost more insurgents. It was a it was a bloody five day span. That was my introduction to Iraq, and I came back. You know, had the rest of that deployment and two more. And nothing like that ever happened to me again. You know, not not to that extent, not to that extreme. But I was like, man, this is what it's going to be like every time. What um, what happened when you had that pivotal moment? What happened? What changed? You know, I don't, I don't know. Oh, yeah. So then, then I just, I really did. I just became okay with it. And I just kind of put that to the side and it just allowed, I didn't, you know, I didn't sit there and hide. I was, I was hanging out the door. I was spotting things. I was making more radio calls. I was able to. Uh, be more proactive and so that I finally see this convoy driving off in the sunset and every, war is not what people think I mean you think we have all these communication is so important when building a business it's the same thing in war we had we had way more sophisticated everything than they did when we rolled into this town but our comms we couldn't I kept I, I saw Zarkali and his motorcade driving off into the sunset and I would tell the pilot, the pilot would try to tell the FAC and the FAC would try to tell the area controller, nobody ever got word to him and we never chased down the motorcade. And we in Zarkawi, we did not get Zarkawi in that, in that mission, as you know. We didn't end up catching up to him until about a year later. Uh, but I watched him drive off into the sunset because of communication issues, which is frustrating. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it shows you just how, how important communication is yeah and and we'll get into that but uh it's important in, in every aspect of life and for people don't who don't know who zarkawi is there's a there's a book that just came out by uh stanley mccrystal we'll put a link uh in in the show notes and we'll also link other books that you know about so you can kind of read up on this guy yeah. he's a a mastermind yeah. brilliant leader i think leaders you know doesn't matter if it's for good no, or yeah. bad. There's, there's, there's yeah. incredible leaders who are terrible people. I mean, he, he had a whole army of people willing to give their life. I mean, to, he, he was a true leader. Mm. He, you know, whether it was for good or bad, like you said, he was able to wield the power of leadership. Yeah, that's right, man. Mm. So let me ask you this. And let me ask you some of the – talk about the greatest lesson – learned in the military if you can boil it down or a couple but yeah. what what do you what do you take away from your service you did now you did 14 years almost 14 years yeah, yeah. and you did the majority of them as you were enlisted for yeah, the I was in, I was enlisted for about eight of them and then I was an officer and then got out as a captain Biggest lessons. I mean, there's so many, right? Like, there's there's all the intangibles about what I was talking about a minute ago. It's just everything that, you know, the work ethic, the don't stop until the job's done. Like, you know, knowing my limits on how far I can push myself when I really think I'm tired, when I really think I need to quit, when I really think I'm hungry. Like, you know, you saw me do the Ironman last year. Mm-hmm. In no way, shape, or form did I complete that because I was in the physical condition I should have been, <laughs> as you saw. <laughs> the only reason I was able to finish that is because the Marine Corps taught me time and time again that if you just keep pushing, you can really do anything you want right so there's all those kind of lessons but you know when I really think back to the span of some of the things that I learned that still stick with me is I remember 
I did all those combat deployments. When you're a helicopter crew chief in the Marine Corps, when you're a helicopter door gunner, when you're not out flying missions, you have to learn how to be a mechanic on the helicopter. You're turning wrenches, you're changing engines, changing transmissions. So it's a lot of long work days of just turning wrenches, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had kind of learned how to test the aircraft and fly a lot more than I ever did. I didn't, I didn't put the time into being a good skilled mechanic, and I should have. That was an important part of my job. I then transitioned to go to a, uh, a non-deployable unit because Kristen said, hey, three is enough. Like, let's take a break for a minute. So I take my wife to the beautiful area that is Yuma, Arizona. <clears throat> it's a non-deployable area. And I realized when I got there, I was a sergeant now. And there was a bunch of these young kids that had never been deployed, but they were better mechanics than me. And, you know, it was, I didn't want to admit to them how many of the mechanical jobs I didn't know how to do. I wanted to hide that, right? I was this sergeant, this combat tested sergeant that they were supposed to look up to. And I'm going to tell them, I don't know how to QA a stinking transmission change. I didn't want to admit that to them because I thought they would look less of me. And you know how much I learned because I didn't admit that to them? I didn't learn anything. Mm. You know, and I spent about six months of... And they can tell, by the way, <laughs> like, hey, this guy can't change the transmission. And then I finally made the same realization. Like, you know what? I do have those things that I should be super proud of, but I'm just going to start being super honest. Even if it, even if they laugh at me and make, you know, if it's the simplest job that I should clearly know how to do, I'm just going to start readily admitting, like, you know what, Lance Corporal, I don't know how to do that. Will you teach me? And when I changed that perspective, I mean, you know already, right? Like, looking back now, it's so obvious. But when I, cha- when I stopped trying to hide the things I didn't know, was still proud of the things I had accomplished, but was more humble and more open to, hey, Lance Corporal, I see you do that job really well. I actually don't know how to do it. Will you show me? The level of respect they had for me just went through the roof. And my learning went through the roof. You know, I... A year after acting that way, I knew so many more jobs. And so, you know, I I carry that with me to this day. Like, you can learn so much more and you can have people respect you so much more if you don't act like a know-it-all. Like, don't hide behind an inferiority complex. You don't have to worry about what you don't know. Be proud of the great things you've done, but you don't know how to do something. Even, and it's worse when you already should know, Hmm. you know, and that's when it's hard for people. But even when you already should know, or if you already knew it and you forgot it, just admit it. You know, I don't know that. Can you show me? People's respect for you goes to the roof and you get to learn a lot. I recently heard a quote that, uh, I forget who it's by, but it says, um, comparison is the thief of joy. And boy, I've sat around for way too much time comparing myself to people and not going anywhere, not making improvements. I think that's a real valuable lesson, man. When we can show our weaknesses, and overcome them. If we don't show them, keep them hidden, we never overcome them. So true. Yeah. So true. Yeah, good. And so I want to say thanks for sharing those, those stories. Yeah, so I know that most of the listeners probably don't know, but there's going to be some really close friends of mine and family that hear those stories. That That's the first time I've ever talked about those. And I don't know why. I don't have a, it's not like it brings up bad memories or uh, nothing like that. I think I just my biggest fear is being a back in the day guy. Like I always want to be looking forward to what I'm building, what's coming next. Like I, that's what keeps me excited. I don't want to talk about the good old days, and so I've never really talked about any of that stuff. So thanks for dragging that out of me. Well, I think it, I think you know it's it's for good reason because people can learn from that. You just shared what you've learned because of those experiences. Yeah. So this is this is helpful. It's um, sometimes it's not about. Uh, 
it's more about what other people can learn from our experiences. So I think that thanks for thanks for sharing those. Yeah. Okay, I want to go back to nine year. Uh, I heard, I heard you recently speak, and you were. I, I got a bio for you. Kind of presented you. Um, and one of the things that really stands out that I did, I had to pull out of you also, I think, is is that you were awarded nine air medals. And I don't really know what that means, but I have sat with other pilots, other yeah. military guys. I've sat with a Navy pilot who we all sat together, and, and uh, he said, "Man, I spent ten years in the military trying to get one air medal. You got nine. So tell <coughs> tell me about those and and the significance." It's funny, Kristen and I passed a car at the grocery store the other day, and he had an air metal license plate, and she was like, you should get one of those, and I was like, yeah, that's funny. Um, and it's true. I, I get told all the time by people who have been pilots for 20-plus years that maybe have one or don't have any. I, to, I guess the reason all the guys I was with were in those missions with me that I just told you about, and they were there, the guys I was with, they were there two years before in the invasion of Iraq, and so I've always thought like, their stories were, you know, my, my stories are nothing compared to what they went through and then definitely nothing compared to what the Vietnam Huey guys went through. I mean, those those guys, you know, so I've never really looked at the significance of those. You get air medals for, for gun missions. If you go in and shoot the Kazakh missions, if you get shot at, if your helicopter takes rounds, it's different. Uh, I told somebody it was a point system one time and he told me that he got the same thing playing Halo. So I don't think he understood what I meant. <laughs> but at nine, even when I, cause as you know, I went back through flight school later and it's funny, like you have your instructor pilots that, you, you know, you all go out to like mess line or something and you put on your thing and they're like, you know, your, your instructors don't have any. And they're like, you have nine air medals. I mean, it's more than most CEOs. But I, I really, the only reason I have them is because I got lucky. Or not lucky, but lucky. That's how Marines would look at it, right? They like being in the fight. Marines like being in the fight. Any Marine out there that doesn't have an air medal, they, they want to go and fly those combat missions. And you just get them from flying those combat missions. And I got more than my fair share of combat missions in 2005. So that's how I was able to rack up so many air medals was... All the times that we took fire, returned fire, did Kazavaks. Kazavak means you go in and uh, pick up engine marines under fire. You know, they're, it's still a hot LZ. It's different than a medevac. A medevac is it's a safe LZ. A Kazavak is that that LZ is still hot, and you got to fly in there and get those guys. So we, and we did a lot of that. So I was able to get the combat air crew uh, wings. I was able to get the nine air medals, and then the the V also for valor. Uh, for those missions, man, we got a lot. We got so much to talk about, <laughs> man. There's just a lot, of, a lot of questions that I have. Yeah, um, but I do want to move to to the entrepreneurship stuff because you made a decision um, after becoming an officer, which I'm not sure everybody understands that you join the military as an enlisted without any education. And you go to your barracks and you sleep on a, a, a rough rack or sometimes on the floor or in a tent or on the sand. And you look at the officers <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes they got their own cabins and private areas to shower. And there's just a separation. Yeah. It's like, it's like the janitor and the CEO. Now that's coming from an enlisted guy <laughs> who spent time around other officers. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but you, you you went to you went you became a pilot, yep. went through fl- flight school, and and then spent some time as an officer, but decided to get out two thirds of the way to retirement. 
essentially. Yeah, I mean, only had six more years. Yeah. You know, and it was before, uh, because they spent a lot of money on you to send you to oh, the flight school and everything else. So yeah. it was before uh, my contract was going to be up too. So my, my, I had to go all the way to the my CEO. He had to approve it. Then he had to go to the MAGCO, the BASEO, and then it went all the way to the Secretary of the Navy. And it took me 16 months of submitting that package and telling them what I wanted to do, why I wanted to do it. Why did he go to the Secretary of the Navy? Just because it was it was a big ask. You know, it was it had to go because <laughs> Marine Corps. Uh, well, you set, you set yourself up for this. Sure. Okay. Uh, but the reason it went to the Secretary of the Navy, because most people don't know that the Marine Corps is a department of the Navy, the men's department. Okay. Uh, okay. But it is a department of the Navy. <laughs> yeah. That's good, man. Okay. So, so you decided to get out and pursue this entrepreneurial dream. Yeah. And I was and kind it started of, before that, but talk, and talk I was kind of, I was kind of the last one to the fight, you know, right? Like so, Kristen was already all in. Cassie was already all in. Robbie walked away from a really good engineering job with almost no notice, by the way. Uh, he walked away from a really good engineering job uh, in Southeast Texas. Like, put the for sale sign in front of his house, packed up his family, quit his job, and moved from Texas to Florida in a two week time span. And this was all to get Delta Life Fitness off the ground. Is that correct? We had a couple of studios at this point, but with me being in California away with the Marine Corps, we had nobody to run headquarters in yeah. Florida. And so I, I guess we need to back up a little bit. Um, to become an officer, yeah, you had to go to OCS. After that, you took a position at, at Texas A&M. Is that correct? That's correct. And that's where Delta Life Fitness was kind of birthed. The, the boot camp version, yes. Okay. Uh, I was leading core cadet kids. Uh, getting, I had to be a PTI while I, was, while I was at Texas A&M for the Marine Corps, the physical training instructor. So I'm getting core. I was running the workout program programming for core cadets getting ready to go to officer cannon school all of that a group of cub scout moms uh, asked me if i would put on a boot camp in the parking lot for them uh like i was doing for the core cadets and that's that was the birth of the whole thing and what year was that 2009 and that was how long before you got out of the military so I didn't get out of the military until 2015 or 16 okay recently so about six years of development oh yeah before you could actually go full-time yes and yeah, of, of growing it in parks and parking lots. Robbie and Cassie opening a studio in Texas. Me and Kristen opening a studio in Florida, opening a second studio, already starting to license and get a couple of other studios up and running. We had a lot, we had a lot going on before I finally said, okay, this is something that I can take full time. It was still a huge chance at the time, you know, to walk away from uh, that Marine Corps retirement, just six years left. I mean, it was a huge risk, a huge gamble, but Something that, uh, like I said, the rest of my team was already all in on and had already taken the leap. <clears throat> and I wanted to join them. That's what entrepreneurs do. They get they take leaps, man. It, you have to. If, if you want it, right? Like, and I, you know, you, you know, you know, I mean, the, the, the struggles of being an entrepreneur are not the same as everybody else, right? Like everybody, everybody has stress. Like if you have a nine to five, you still have stress. Like, am I going to yeah. get, am I going to get laid off? Is this industry going to go away? But when you're an entrepreneur... Uh, especially in a, uh, a sell or survive type, you know, if you have any kind of transactional business, I mean, it is a, I met a guy a couple weeks ago. He was like, you know, I finally quit my full-time corporate job to sell roofs. And I, I kind of did the numbers and I knew that if I just sold one every month, I'd be fine. And me and my family would be okay. And I went the first six months without selling a roof. <laughs> you know I mean? It happens, but it, it builds in you. You know, that forges greatness. I mean, that having to figure out 
how to make it, the stress that comes from just having, I mean, I love it, right? Like I do, I love it. It's hard, it's stressful, but having that, being in the fire, being in the game, like I'd pull my hair out at a nine to five, you know, I just would. So, so talk about, talk about from 2009 to where you are today, the progression of Delta Life Fitness, where you're going, and then sprinkle in that pivotal moment, um, where you really, you really did you did you learn this in Iraq and just applied it to entrepreneurship? But talk talk. Oh about yeah, that. good point. Okay, so uh, like I said, two thousand nine was you know in a park. Uh, so you had you had the park era. Then it becomes we're looking at CrossFit at the time, right? So it's more warehouse uh, style studios starting to open. That takes you all the way up until about two thousand twelve, two thousand thirteen. Then we start getting into more retail spaces and boutique. Uh, we're still running uh, separate, you know, studios under the same name, Delta Life Bootcamp back then, but in Florida and in Texas. My dad comes down. He sees what we're doing. He opens one in Texas under a license. Another guy, Kevin Dickin, opens one under a license who now owns three franchises for us. Kevin and Jessica Dickin, they're awesome operators. They do great things. Uh, one of my door gunner buddies from back in the day, Bobby Wise, he jumps on and opens one in, in Daytona Beach, Florida. He's a franchisee to this day. So um, in the beginning, it was some family and friends, right? And we're under this license model. It continues to evolve. We continue to figure more and more out. It starts to look less and less like Robbie and I and more like the consumer <clears throat> that we're trying to build this for, right? We start figuring out some really good systems. I was forced to build good systems because when we had the studio in Florida, I knew that we were only going to be there for two years. So I knew Kristen and I were not going to be there two years later to run those studios. So we had to systematize everything to where those studios would be able to run by themselves when we moved on. Like, right, that was that was the goal. That was the idea at the time. Make sense? Yep. Uh, so we build all these systems. We get linked up with one big investment company who does this huge deal with us in California. They end up doing 30 units with us in California. Uh, we make the transition to a franchise. And for those of you that don't know, the difference between a license and a franchise is huge. Uh, we didn't know it at the time, but you need a good half million dollars to just build the assets of a franchise, the operations manual, the legal documents, the trademarks, all of that. And then you need about three years of building all those systems and getting it right before any of that money starts coming back. So it's a, it's a lot of upfront cash. Robbie and I at the time, we're pouring all the money that our studios are making our money that we're making from our from his engineering job and me in the Marine Corps, anything above what we need to live on, we're pouring into this thing. <laughs> you know, we cash flow it most of the way. I mean, we're creating cash, we're pouring everything into this. We Robbie and Cassie make the move to Florida, they're running the headquarters, we continue to build all the assets, we continue to go into our franchise model. We stopped selling franchises altogether in 2015 for about a year and a half. We brought in uh, Lynette which was a franchise consultant. She was a VP of franchising for Duncan for many years. She actually taught us how to build. We knew a lot about the fitness business at this point. By the way, like every deployment I would go on, every time I was off at the officer training schools, I had a six-month school in Quantico, I would do my Marine Corps stuff, and then everything outside of that was studying marketing and sales. <clears throat> Read as many books as you can. I mean, that's the number one tip, right? Like, if you don't have Audible on your phone, download that right now. I mean, listen to every sales and marketing book you can podcast. I mean, you have to take, you know, when you're driving, you should be learning like period, <laughs> you know, or silence and pray and meditate and get your mind right or visualization, but don't listen to the radio, right? Waste time. <clears throat> 
So we transitioned over to the franchise. We built all these best-in-class systems. We move. We decided to move now because now I'm out of the Marine Corps. Um, we're in Florida. We're like, hey, let's go back home. You know, so we pick Houston. We come back here summer of 17. We start getting some studios open here. And now after all that, you know, starting from a, a, a boot camp in a park to the warehouse to the franchise model, which is really something to be proud of now. These new studios were open and are amazing. The economic model is amazing. Every, it's really cool. And we're really proud of it. Um, now we're at about 30 units, franchise units now, which is a big difference from the license, right? But we're at 30 franchise units open or being developed. We added 12 last year. We're going to add 15 or more this year. We have a big event coming up this Friday. We have groups coming in from Chicago. We have groups coming in from everywhere. We're, we're taking this thing nationwide, man. My, uh, my promise to my little girl, who's 11, is that when she goes to college, she can go to any college in the country, and there will be a Delta Life there for her to work out at. So we're on, yeah. we're on a nationwide mission to get and, – and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing. Uh, never – so one of the, le- the lessons I learned is just like when I was in Iraq and I finally had to realize that, like, I can – in order for me to do my job and serve these other Marines around me, I have to be okay with, with dying. Mm. And that's what enabled me to be a better operator and do my job as a door gunner. Yeah. You saw me through a pretty rough year last year when you're growing at the size we are growth sucks cash i have all these other people that are opening these studios you wear the stress of their success on your back you know we have close to 200 employees system-wide thousands of members for us at headquarters it's stressful it's exciting and to the outside world, to everybody else, it's like, oh, man, you guys are kicking butt. You're growing. And, and that's true. Yeah. And I'd love to celebrate those wins. But to think that that kind of growth that fast happens without an extreme amount of stress is crazy, right? Mm-hmm. So I got to a point where I was, you know, one glass of wine would turn into a bottle of wine. I finally gave up drinking altogether about five months ago. So, you Good know, job, I got that done. Uh, and then I finally and – you, and you make excuses. I, I told – our marketing director in California, I told him, I said, um, he, he was giving me a hard time about being overweight. And I was like, dude, I'm just in a season of my life where I'm putting Delta Life first. And he's like, dude, don't give me that crap. Like, season of your life. I think I told you the same thing. So, anyway, I finally realized, and you, and you do, as an entrepreneur, you make excuses. Like, well, I can't afford to go to the gym right now. Like, I got stuff to do. I got people depending on me. And you, and you can justify it, right? And you can put off your workout. And you can say, I'm going to work late tonight and I'll catch up with the kids tomorrow, right? And I finally had to make the realization that, you know what, Delta Life, same way I made in Iraq, same revelation. I had to realize like, Delta Life's either going to make it and be an awesome company and be nationwide, international really. We've got some interest now in Mexico and some other countries, so we, we are, we're going to explore that. I mean, we want to be an international franchise and, and, I, and we've got everything for it. But, you know, I can't control everything in the world, right? Like, Delta Life Fitness could go away six months from now. There could, Delta Life could go under. And I had to finally be okay with that. Like, it, I'm going to do everything I can, but it could... I mean, Toys R Us just went under, mm. right? And look at the monster that was. For me to think that it's just 100% guaranteed that Delta Life's going to make it and just me working harder is going to make it, it's kind of silly. So I finally just accepted. Delta Life's either going to be this awesome international franchise... Or it's going to go bankrupt. But at the end of the day, on either two of those scenarios, I'm going to be left with a couple of things. Myself, my body, my fitness, my faith, and my family. Those are going to be there no matter the other two outcomes. 
You know what I mean? Right, yeah. And I'm going to do everything I can to make one outcome over the other. But things happen. And so now I've made my family a priority. I've made my faith a priority. I've spent a lot of time on me. If, if you call me right now at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm probably at the gym. And I'm probably not going to take your call. But you know what? The rest of the day, I'm getting so much more done. I'm serving my franchisees like I've never done before. Because I put my oxygen mask on first... And I'm taking care of myself, my mental clarity, the amount of work I'm getting done. My output is so much greater. And one of the things we just heard at your keynote the other day was about George Bush. Mm-hmm. Did you know that George Bush didn't miss one day of exercising the whole time he was in office? That's crazy to think about. And why is that? You know, because I mean, he's, I imagine when you were in the country, you're probably pretty busy. But he knew that if he didn't take that time to take care of himself and get those runs in every single morning, he wouldn't be able to take care of everybody else in the country. And I've just, I've really come to the same, I'm going to take care of myself because I know, because I saw it. I saw it last year. If I don't take care of myself and my headspace and my fitness, I'm not going to be worth a crap to anybody else. Right. So that's, that's the, that's the realization that I've made, man. It's been awesome for me in my, my relationships, my partnerships, my marriage, my kids, the business, everything has been dramatically better since I've started taking that approach. Yeah. So what do you, what do you tell the entrepreneur that says, I'm just too busy to work out or, um, maybe invest in themselves through training what, what do you say to get across to them? You know what it sounds. And how important is it? It sounds so cliche, right? Uh-huh. Like you don't, you're like you don't have time not to, right? But that really is the answer. <laughs> like you, you cannot. And I know where you're coming from, entrepreneur who's just nose to the grindstone, not making time for uh, networking, not taking time for surrounding yourself with good, smart people that you can lean on for counsel, mm-hmm. uh, reaching out and paying for business coaching, uh, who's not picking up books and learning more and who's not exercising. I get it. I know that those things take time, but I'm you. You are going to die a slow, miserable death, and out and try to outwork yourself until you just go crazy if you don't take care of those things. Yeah, very good, man. That that's important. Like that's important to get as quickly as possible and to and to implement into your routine as quickly as possible. It's true. Otherwise, what happens? You try to figure out everything by yourself. You get. You can only know. What, what, when you're trying to fix a solution as entrepreneurs, all you do is fix, you come up, you see a problem, you come up with a solution it produces to do's and you just do that over and over again, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's literally all you do. And when you're only stuck with yourself and you're grinding it out, like I can go on one run, listen to one audio book and it can not even be about the same topic as the problem I have, but it gives me an idea. My mind starts flowing, solutions start coming together. It reminds me of somebody I can reach out to and you start coming up with better solutions to those problems on that iteration, that OODA loop, you know, observe, orient, decide and act. You start getting better and, make, and making that smarter and, and you speed that OODA loop up. Excellent, man. You mentioned something earlier, and I want to kind of transition to uh, to how important teamwork is. But I don't want to force anything. Can let me ask you this: Can you be successful? Can Josh be successful alone? So I was talking to a business owner the other day. Who was it? Oh, I was talking to Mr. Clarity, Shane Clarity, okay. with a, who who's done a phenomenal job. Small town country boy as well uh, has grown a. A construction company Great to guy. a multi-million dollar construction company, right? Him and I were talking about the importance of growing teams and understanding, and Pat Lencioni, if you want anything to know about teamwork, Pat Lencioni's 
the one to go to. I mean, all those books are great, but Five Dysfunctions of the Team is, mm-hmm. is really solid. Um, we, when you, when you, like, the example is like I was telling you when I was first running that studio myself, right? And I was training all the clients myself, sweeping the floor myself, going on grocery store tours with them myself, right? Uh, and Shane was talking about that. He's like, man, when I was, when I was the one doing the sales and do, building the product for them and following up with them, I got a lot more referrals. You know, we were just saying that you can do that to a certain level, right? Like you can take it yourself. Any one person can take a company, an idea, an, an institution, a not, not-for-profit. You can take it to a certain level by yourself. Mm-hmm. You're going to work really hard and nonstop and you got to do everything. But then you're going to hit a ceiling. And this is just science, by the way. Like you're going to hit a ceiling. And unless you can figure out how to bring in a team that's going to argue with you, that's going to bring conflict, that's going to show you different ways, that's going to contribute and figure out how to get the right people in the right seats. Unless you can figure that out, unless you can put those pieces to work for you, um, you're stuck at that ceiling. It's just it's just facts, right? Like, mm-hmm. And the better you can get a team for a long time, I thought I wasn't a very good teammate uh, because I thought – that well, I had the bad tendency of saying, well, I've put more thought into this, or I read the book that talks about that, so what, what, why does your opinion matter? I'm the one that read the book. I know about it, right? Like, my idea is the right one, <laughs> which is an incredibly dangerous thing to do, right? Zig Ziglar says, when you stop listening to the people closest to you, you got a really bad problem. So I love the fact that uh, my team now, my leadership team, I mean, you get on one of our calls, our, our leadership calls that we do every Monday, you, if you just listened in, you'd probably think, what is wrong with this team? All they do is argue and get very passionate about why they think it should be this way. Like they don't agree on anything. Why are they a team? But that's what makes it such a great team, right? Like we are, and that wasn't always the case. We, we hated conflict. We were a bunch of yes men, not just a couple years ago. Now you get us on a call. We, and it's awesome. Like because of that process, I'll hear somebody be very passionate and they will bring up something I missed and I didn't see. And I can't tell you how many times through that process it's changed my mind. Uh, something I've said has changed somebody else's mind. And no matter what, we come out of it, you know, we argue very passionately about all the different views and then we come out of it with a solution that we all agree on and we own that solution and we go forward. And it's, you know, it's very powerful. Excellent, man. Very good. You talked about a tribe earlier when you were talking about the ladies who helped that one lady uh, keep her membership active. She's going through a divorce, financial trouble, but her tribe came together and uh, paid for her membership. How important is it to have a tribe? Do you have one? And, and you know, what are some key qualities? Oh, good question. Yeah. Uh, so I'll answer the first question first. Uh, so with the gyms, this is something I'm really proud of. When, when you look at the space right now, the boutique fitness industry space, Nobody can touch Orange Theory. Like I said, they're 1,100 units. They did 1 billion in sales last year. Operationally, they're the best. Their, their pricing model makes the most sense. They outwork everybody else. They make more phone calls. They set more appointments. They make more sales every week than anybody else. And we're learning from them. And we're trying to implement those same systems and operations like how they execute. But one thing we do way better than them that we got from CrossFit. CrossFit is amazing at, at building a tribe, a group of people. That's I mean, true. At CrossFit, people will miss a family function 
to go to a beach bash and go to a, a birthday for one of the other CrossFit members. Like, that's how they've done such a great job at that. You know, that's what we try to build at Delta Life Fitness. We have our little black dress gala once a year where all the ladies come out and go out and have little, we have ladies night out. Um, the ladies at Delta Life form their own coffee groups where, you know, so our community, our tribe is where we've got Ernst there. We, we, we've got them there. You know, they, like I said, operationally, they beat us. But we've got them on the tribe. I mean, I can't. And they, it's funny. Uh, you probably see some of my posts, but they make like squad T-shirts and like little all. Those ladies love each other. They become a close group. And we got that from CrossFit. And we want to, we want to, as much as we want to try to operationally keep up with Orange Theory, we never want to lose that part of what makes Delta Life great. Because that tribe for those ladies is super important. For me personally, no, I don't. You know, <laughs> I don't think I do. Um entrepreneurship's lonely, right? Leadership is lonely. I'm not proud of that. I need a tribe. I need a good one. Uh, I don't have a good workout community. Maybe one day somebody will make a men's model gym and I can find me a good tribe. Uh, I've got, I've got, I've got, you know, I've got the people that I spend a lot of time with. Robbie's my best friend. I spend a lot of time with him. You know, we, we, we work through a lot of things together. We spend a lot of time together. Uh, I've got my, my little people that I spend a lot of time with. I've got my networking friends. I've got guys from Vell that I spend a lot of time with. But, um, you know, not really. I spend a lot of time in solitude, right? Like leadership's just, leadership's just kind of like that. Yeah, sometimes it feels like you're on, uh, on an island. Yeah. Yeah. Why is that? What can we do to fix that for other leaders listening? Man, that's a good question. And I don't know. I would, you know, in, you know, in the past, the way I, I really felt that was when Robbie and I were in different mastermind groups. We were with a group, Net Profit Explosion, and we would go with other gym owners, other people trying to grow fitness brands. And I, I really felt connected to those groups. Um, I haven't had that in a while. I kind of miss it. Thanks for making me sad and making me realize I don't have that. Hey, you think back to the military. <laughs> there were tribes in the military. Oh, yeah. Yeah, your fire team, you know, the yeah. guys who you hung out with. And man, how close did you feel to those people? And how strong did you feel when you were around that circle of people? Oh, man. I mean, like I said, it's, you know, one of my buddies renewed his vows in Vegas last year. And Chris and I flew out there from those. And those are lifelong friendships now. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> so... Yeah. One one more question about the fitness industry, Delta Life, uh, Delta Life, and then I want to move to something else. Uh, Delta Life Fitness. How does Delta Life Fitness not become a curved fitness? Ooh, good question. Good question. And this is this is applicable for yeah. for every business because no, businesses yeah. rise and fall. Like Toys R Us quickly um, nowadays, especially in the boutique fitness space. So. Everybody has looked at Orange Theory, like I said, and they think they have figured out, this is why I'm so passionate about this, because I really, we've spent more time looking at this, and I think we haven't figured out more than anybody else, so I know it sounds arrogant, but it's true. Uh, Orange Theory, really, everybody, everybody that you talk to now is the next Orange Theory, right? But they're, they only took what they think made Orange Theory successful, and they're coming out with these uh, more gimmicky style workouts that can, can fade really quickly. Like you've got um, some that are just, uh, and not, nothing against any of these models, but they, they have some that are just tied to cycling or just tied to rowing or just tied to kickboxing. In my opinion, and it's a humble opinion, those that's not the way to go, right? Because now you're tied to 
Uh, when's the last time I heard somebody talk about Tybo, right? Or any of that stuff. It's what happened to curves. We actually did an extensive study on what happened to curves. Because as impressive as Orange Theory is, in 2006, curves did $7 billion in system sales. They were the largest fitness franchise in the world with 11,000 units open. And now there's less than 1,000 of them left. They sold a couple times to different conglomerate companies. But they, uh, you know, they're, they really came up in the 90s. And their workouts still look like they're from the 90s. They never evolved those workouts. And CrossFit and group training in the early 2000s changed the landscape of how people want to work out. You want to leave feeling like you got a good workout. You do not leave curves feeling like you got a good workout. And so it became stereotyped as the old lady workout, just some old school 90s and 80s aerobic movements that... If you're in really bad shape and 80 years old, you can go there. And that's the stereotype they got, and they never evolved, and they never kept up, right? Okay. So the way we're trying to stay in front of that as best we can is, we one, we're not tied to any type of workout, right? Like, we're not tied to a piece of equipment, uh, a trampoline, a cycle, uh, cycling, or rowing. We're tied to our mission. Our mission is to provide the best 30-minute workout for women, Right? That's going to change. Right now, tire flip machines and TRX straps and battle ropes is what women love. 20 years from now, nobody might use those pieces of equipment. And we're going to evolve. And we're going to keep up with the times. And we're going to continue to give the best 30-minute workout for women, period. Based on their metabolism their everything. We know who we serve. That's priority number one. How we serve them may need to evolve and change. And we're going to keep up with that. And that's what's going to keep us in the game. Great, great answer. Yeah, your means to an end will change. Your end is not going to change. Your best 30-minute, best-in-class workout. That's what drives us. Yeah, that's good. I want to I wrap up with a couple questions about mindset and you personally. Because one thing I heard you say uh, maybe six months ago, eight months ago is I can't be the same person five years from now if I want Delta Fitness to be much different, much greater. You got to grow personally, professionally. You got to grow your your skills as a CEO and you got to evolve, evolve yourself. So how do you do that? One, um, I also want to talk about speaking because you're you're an incredible speaker and that started early on in your life. I mean, you're a dynamic speaker. Um, but that started early on, early on in your life. There was a story about you and your mom. That's correct. Can, can you, can you tell that real quick? Yeah. I was in fourth grade. We were doing, uh, was a country and Western play in our school. And I had the, the gig of reading the little poem at the end of the play. Uh, so I go out there in my little country and Western wear fourth grade and I stutter and I walk up to the mic and I read through the poem and, you know, thought I was sounding like a complete goober. I walk off stage, get home that night, my mom. Uh, who's the one who filled me with the gift of what it means to build people up and talk about what they're great at instead of beating up people and what they're not good at. Uh, she did that for me. She was always telling me, she literally would tell me all the time that God put me on this planet for something big. I mean, she built that in my head from the time I was a little kid, you know. Uh, but she came up to me after that play and, you know, Josh, you see what happened out there tonight? Yeah, mom, I read the poem. I was like, no, Josh. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's like... That was the best public speaking I've ever seen in my life. You, that was amazing. You were put on this earth by God to either be a preacher or a politician or a leader or a public speaker of some kind. That was awesome. And I, I believed it. 
you know, and she continued to build that into me. They had there's a couple of more that you haven't heard. Uh, her parents had a 50th wedding anniversary a couple of years later, uh, and all the kids had to give a speech. My mom was terrified of speaking, so she let me give her speech instead. So now here I am, sixth grade, uh, big room full of people at this 50th wedding anniversary, my second public speaking gig. And I give the speech, and again, she just filled my head with unhealthy amounts of propaganda of how good of a speaker I was. And I just I just believed it. And I continued to build on my confidence. And I just, I, I, you know, I ended up winning uh, one state for public speaking in high school. Like, I, and all built on the fact that she built that up in me. And I just, you know, when you believe in something, it's a lot easier to take action on it. Sounds like she planted a seed in you early on and she just kept on nurturing it. <laughs> she did. <laughs> she did. Yeah, so recently you got to speak in front of 4,500 people? It was, like it was just over 5,000. Wow. Uh, and, you know, I got a lot of people to thank for that. Uh, Terry, you've been great. I sit down and put it out in the universe a year and a half ago that I wanted to do a TED Talk, I think, and uh, you said, well, if that's the fact, we've got to get you speaking. And we, we, I was able to do a few different uh, speeches leading up to that one. I uh, did a keynote for Vell, which caught an atten- which caught the attention of this bigger organization, Leadworthy, you know, a phenomenal organization. Uh, they invited me to go speak for them in, at their big Leadworthy conference here in Houston. It was just over five thousand people in attendance. The the energy and the nerves, and it was awesome. I loved it. Uh, but you know, I kind of felt like that was my. I was like, man, I'm never going to get back on the stage like that. Uh, about a month later, they called me and invited me back to speak for them. So I must not have messed it up too bad. So uh, here in March, coming up, I get to go uh, speak at another big event for them in Dallas. So pretty excited That's about That's incredible, it. man. Let's talk about the mindset. Mindset, what you do to get your mind right, your daily practices. I've heard you talk about... Uh, I've heard you talk about prayer, meditation, uh, visualization... How important is that stuff, and what do you recommend for people who want to become a better better version of themselves five years from now? What do they got to do today? Because a lot of people want to be something different in five years and just say, well, I'll wait till tomorrow. I got a lot of time. Yeah. And you said, you know, and you're right. I do always think, like, I've got to continue to grow because the, you know, <laughs> the leadership team that does a lot is going to need it even one year from now. That guy's got to know a lot more than I know now. So I've got, and I owe one of my early business coaches, Sean Greeley from Net Profit Explosion. He lived that. He embodied that. He was always growing himself and pouring into us. Uh, and that's where I learned that from. But to answer your question, uh, the two biggest for me that I think everybody, especially if you're going to be an entrepreneur and you're going to try and tackle something big, Another way to make sure you continue growing is just stay uncomfortable. If you completely feel like it's all falling apart around you and you have no idea what you're doing, you're doing the right thing, right? You seem like you like to be in, in uncomfortable spots. Yeah. So I'm glad, I'm and glad it, you. I guess I'm a glutton for punishment, but uh, you, if you're going to continue to grow, you got to continue to push the envelope, right? And then you're forced to grow. you got to keep up with it. Or you need to admit that you can't keep up with it and step out of the way, right? And I'll have to make that decision at some point. I don't know when, but I'll have to make that decision at some point. And most people do as they grow an organization. The two biggest for my life right now, because they're stressful growing this organization. Like I said, I mean, you've got not only is our leadership and just my family and the leadership team and their families and the franchisees and their families and the 200 plus staff members, like, you know, and I'm, and we're supposed to be looking at what's you know, staying in front of all those tough questions you've asked me today. Like somebody's got to be looking at that stuff and it, it's a lot of stress and it's a lot. So two of the biggest things I have to do, one and the best one and the easiest one everybody can do is visualization. 
You've heard me talk about that. I visualize things and it's my, I do the visualization desk. Uh, it's the best technique you can do for anything. And this is an immediate one that you can just do right now, right? So you just, all you do is you have a big event coming up. You have something, you know, this is how I got through flight school. I'm not a numbers guy. I'm a words guy. Uh, but I was able to graduate with a perfect flight score, number one in my, in my class in flight school, which was huge for me because, like I said, I was not – I was not on the same playing field with the rest of the engineers and the sure. math guys, but the way I the way I was able to finish the morning of my class was visualization. Before every flight, I would sit down and do the visualization desk. Visualization desk from Psycho Cybernetics is the name of the book. He talks about how Tom Brady does it and all these great football players do it. And I've, now that I've done it for a long time now, I realize how many very successful people do this visualization exercise or something like it, where you just you close your eyes, you try to. You take everything out of your head and you picture yourself putting, pulling everything out of your head that you're thinking about. The dog, the vet, the appointment you missed, your kids track meet later today. Like You visualize yourself putting everything on a desk that's clouding your mind and getting in your way. Then you open the bottom drawer and you rake all that stuff in there. I'm, I'm going to get back to that later. Then you pull out the drawer above it and you take out the one thing you need to go focus on right then. For me, through flight school, it, would, it was a helicopter, the flight. Then I would pull that out. And I would literally just close my eyes and I would just visualize very quickly, two to three minutes, in as much detail as I could the next three hours of the brief, the flight. And when I say like detail, I mean to the point, to the outcome I wanted to produce also. I would visualize it to us finishing the flight and the instructor pilot coming around, shaking my hand, and I would visualize him saying, you know, Lieutenant Cherry, well done today. That was one of the best, well-prepared flights I've been on a long time. You're doing great. I'm going to give you great scores. I, w- I would literally, and it would be so funny, like, after the flight, when they would walk around and tell me that, I would just, like, start smiling, like, how did I bring this into the world? When I go do speeches now... Hold on one sec. How long did that process of visualization take for that entire flight? Congratulation. Boom. The whole thing. At first, when I first started doing it, because I wasn't as used to it right, it would take five to ten minutes. I got to where I could do it in 60 seconds or less if I had to. Now, I want to clarify. You can't just start visually visualizing being an airplane pilot. You have to understand the basics, the techniques. You have to understand the knowledge mm-hmm. before you can run through the visualization. Yes. Okay. But even if you don't, you could you could... You right now, I can teach you enough in the next 30 seconds that you could do a pretty good visualization of a couple of things. You know, him coming in and being impressed with how well the space was put together. Him making a comment about how you got to the plane early and had the plane ready. And you know what happens when you visualize through that? You understand like how little efforts can lead to something bigger. When you don't do that, you're, you just become reactive to everything. You're late to the plane. You don't get it untied. You're wondering why he's frustrated because the plane wasn't untied. You get to cheat. Visualize that crap beforehand. You've got the blueprint. <laughs> you know what I mean? Give me one example of how you use this in your in your daily routine now, now that you're not training for... So I get ready to go give this keynote for Bell Institute, Okay. right? Uh, I don't know if you know, but about 10 minutes before the speech started, I disappeared. Okay. I went out to the balcony of the mall, and I sat out there, and for about three minutes, I went through you guys reading through my bio and introducing me. I went through me standing up and making a joke and I visualized the crowd laughing and reacting to my energy. Just, the, I didn't rehearse the speech, just those key things. I, I, I visualized the face Kristen would make when I make a key point and look at her and her being proud of me and looking back at me. 
I visualize me giving the speech and everybody clapping. I visualize people walking up to me after the speech and shaking my hand and saying, I got so much value out of that. Well done. You're a natural speaker. I agree. Your mom was right. I visualize people saying that exact word. And just so everybody knows, that happened before you ever left the stage. General Hummer, who spoke alongside you, said your mom was right immediately after you left the stage. I had four to five people at right after the speech come up and shake my hand and say, good job. I got so much value. Your mom was right. I visualized that before the speech. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so it just it enables you to create a future outcome. And it's, it's, so visualization is is an, a real technique, is an actual technique that you should. I mean, if professional athletes and presidents are using it, we should probably too. If you have an important meeting coming up, if you have an important sales call, if you have a if you have a good briefing that you have coming up, if you have a big event that you're trying to throw, visualize that thing. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Uh, the next one and the most important for me, if we have time, yeah, is gratitude. You know, when you're growing a business or doing anything, uh, man, is it stressful, right? And you start to become consumed with the what ifs and you know all these things. And I already told you, I had to kind of realize like if it goes away, it's okay, right? And I've heard other big CEOs talk about this stuff before, like. People who are running big companies, you have to have this gratitude. And so I have to go out every morning. I have to just remember, uh, you know, my yes, I have my stress and those are real and those are going to be there. But I always try to remember people who have had it worse than me. I try to realize how lucky I am. I mean, you know, out of the 7 billion people that are on the planet today and of the 100 billion people that have ever been on the planet, you and I and everybody else in this podcast, and I know this about them because they're able to listen to this podcast we're in the top, we're in the luckiest 1% of humans that have ever walked the earth, right? Like if Delta life does go away, I'll be incredibly depressed and sad, but we live in a great time and a great community and a great economy. I'll go get a job, you know, and still be able to put food on my family. One of the things I do for gratitude a lot is I think about people who've come before us. Henry Ford is one I think about a lot. You know, there's a lot of controversy on what kind of a leader he was, but I do think about, I try to put myself And I can just think about this for a second and it makes it easier for me to get back to work with the stress, quote unquote, that I'm dealing with. So I try to put myself in Henry Ford's shoes in 1938. He's growing this huge company, right? The assembly line and they're bolting Fords together, right? In 1938, we're, you know, almost 10 years removed from the Great Depression, Uh, He's dealing with all the same things that us entrepreneurs are today, building a business, growing it, cash flow, all these big paychecks. But he's also, he's had to hire his own police force because on the front lines of his business every day, there's riots. People need jobs. The country is starving. Like people, you know, everybody around him is really suffering. He's making all this money, but he's living with the stress of these people are being killed for safety violations in his factories. You've got riots on the front row of his factories every day where people are losing their lives because of him, quote unquote, right? He's got all that going on. And then on the news, every night on the radio, he has to hear about this guy in Germany who's potentially going to come invade and kill everybody in America. Hitler's getting ready to sweep. So in 1938, just think about what all Henry Ford's thinking about as he's growing this company, right? Yeah. I'm, he, he's got the safety violations, the people that are dying, the bus- all the business stress still there, and the whole country is about to go to war with Germany who's sweeping all of Europe. You know? Like, how hard was it for Henry Ford to go to sleep every night? And so I just, I have like one moment of thought of what all he's dealing with. And I realized my stress at Delta Life 
it's going to pass, right? Like I'm hoping that we do the right things and we're the biggest and best company in the world. But if not, incredibly grateful that should the worst happen, um, I'm in a great community where I can go get a job and it's everybody I know is, is employed. Everybody I know is putting food on the table for their family. My family has plenty of food. I'm able to, to worship however I want to worship. I don't have any restrictions on me. I'm free. Like, so I, just, I have that, like, I try to ground myself in that gratitude and it makes everything that could seem like this huge problem that day, you realize it's going to be okay. <laughs> right? Like, so that's a really big one for me. That's good, man. Yeah, one of the favorite, just to go back to Henry Ford for a minute, one of my favorite quotes comes from him. He says, uh, whether you think you can or you think you cannot. You're right. You're right. So important, man. It is. Yeah, your beliefs and mindset, beliefs especially, self-fulfilling prophecy. So true. Well, good, man. I have had an absolute blast learning from you. And I just want to compliment you because uh, I think the community is better since you've arrived than it was before you got here. Absolutely believe that, man. You brought energy. You brought business. You do a lot for the community. Um, you serve on the Dell Institute board. Um, man, you do a lot. A lot of people respect you. A lot of people look up to you. And I think the, the, one of the best ways to gauge a leader is when they speak, people listen. And what they say influences people. So that happens when you talk. Well, Terry, thank you so much. That really means a lot to me. Thank you. Yeah. Any uh, parting thoughts or um, just real quick before we, before we cap this off, what, what would you recommend for people to read and study? What do you read and study? What do you hold close and, and dear to kind of foundational for, for leaders or entrepreneurs? What would you recommend? I mean, there's so many, right? Uh, I mean, some, of, down. some of the some of the good ones that, that like the ones I like to read every year: How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's just a great book. Brings up a lot of historical references. Uh, if you haven't been through, sometimes it's not what you read; it's also like who you go through it with. Uh, I, I, you know, those, the Vell courses, the leadership courses. Those those courses are huge for you to go through and meet other guys or women that are going through the same thing and read a book and come and talk about what you learned or a small group with your church. You know, any of those type of things are really good. Um, the books from the Arbinger Institute, uh, Leadership and Self-Deception, Getting Out of the Box, no matter where you're at in your life, that is a great book. Leadership and Self-Deception, Getting Out of the Box. Love that one. Love The Go-Giver. Uh, if you're looking for business books, if you're an entrepreneur just getting started, you absolutely have to start with Michael Gerber's The E-Myth. Mm. Uh, the E-Myth uh, Revisited is one of the best all-around uh, business books ever. When you come out of Michael Gerber and E-Myth, go straight into everything Jim Collins. Mm. Uh, read Built to Last, Good to Great, all of those, and then you can make your way, and that's going to help you build a, a, a company. Uh, and then once you start growing a team, you need to transition over to Pat Lencioni and start learning some, you know, pick up some traction, Gino Wickman and, and some of the Pat Lencioni books. Awesome, man. Well, I'm excited about your future. I'm, I'm excited about watching you change the world. Um, we're going to put a link in the show notes. If people want to see the, the talk that you gave for Vell Institute, the one that we alluded to during the conversation, uh, that they can check out that link. Um, it's, it's a decent recording and it shows kind of your energy, 
some of your beliefs and it goes into, de- into depth about the way you think about things. We did a lot here, but that's a great kind of supplement for what we talked here. That'd be great. And, and anybody in the local community, I mean, uh, you know, Terry, but I'm, I'm very, I just want everybody to know, very approachable. You can, you can send me an email, josh at deltalifefitness.com. If you have any questions at all, hit me up on Facebook or send me an email and I'll do my best to uh, schedule a lunch or a coffee with you and get to know you a little better. Yeah. And where can people find out? I know you guys are on, I know Delta Life Fitness is on Facebook. Um, is it Delta Life fitness.com what is it delta life fitness.com and and they can search you on facebook and find you find delta life fitness there also that's correct yeah you guys are building something incredible and i know it's a team effort thanks for talking about the importance of that yeah it's it couldn't happen without it thanks man yeah appreciate you thanks terry our mission for this podcast is to bring you stories about veterans entrepreneurs and leaders who are doing fascinating things with their lives Our hope is to inspire you because we believe that inspired individuals will change lives, both theirs and others for the good. Bell Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we're asking for your support. There are two ways to do that. One, by getting involved with our mission, and two, by contributing financially. Please visit bellinstitute.org. That's V-E-L institute.org to help us make an impact.